0: Okay, I think we're going to make a start. Um, Hello, my name's Amy Mullet. I'm one of Jane's colleagues at the PPG. And if anybody's been tweeting with us this morning, um, hello, I'm the one you've been tweeting with. And I do most of the blogging as well. So um, do come and say hello at the end if you've been blogging with us or tweeting. Um, So we're on to the first of the afternoon sessions. Uh, We've got session A, which is academic impact on policy making. Uh, We've got three really great speakers this afternoon. Maria from the Department of Communication and the local government. We've got Jill from the IFG and James from HP. Edgar Whitley is going to be chairing for us. Um, We've got about an hour, just under an hour. All questions again at the end, please. And um,
1: enter the session. Thank you.
0: Good afternoon, everybody. I hope you had a good session this morning. Um, It's a privilege to be coming along this afternoon to... Listen to the other presentations and to share with you some of my own experiences as a government analyst. Um, I thought the topic of the conference was fascinating, Um, so I'm very interested to hear the discussion and debate um, as as a result of the presentations you'll hear today. What I wanted to do was present you with a view of how evidence and analysis and research is used in the policy making process. And I was asked to cover three broad areas in uh, this very short presentation. One was how we use it. The other the types of uh, academic activities that have informed uh, policy making. And thirdly ways in which we can work better together both within government and across government and academic um, organisations. Right. This rather cluttered slide sets out an overview of how evidence and analysis is used in policy making. It's very important when developing policies to fully understand the topic, the issue on which the policy will be developed. It's also to understand the context within which that policy will be delivered and rolled out, implemented and measured. We want to be able to identify the most effective and efficient policy options to ensure that we get the best public policy benefits and outcomes and achieve real value for money. We also need to understand and spot future threats, challenges and opportunities that might impact upon a policy. So research and evidence is very important in helping us to look at what might be on the horizon. And also, we have to be accountable for the money that is spent and therefore to measure and monitor the impacts of the policies and programs of work. On the uh, side of the text, you see a, a kind of diagram, a pie chart. And this is probably something you might be familiar with. It's a cycle, a policy framework, a policy cycle. And into each of those segments of the pie, um, in the policy stage of uh, policy development stages, evidence and analysis plays a very important role, um, and this is underpinned through guidance from the Green Book and the Magenta Book, which are the sort of handbooks for policy makers and analysts in government. And in order to populate and form evidence analysis in the the policy development cycle, this means that we have to use a multiple of sources of research analysis. So it's working with research centers, academics, commercial research providers, think tanks, charities, and pooling together an awful lot of knowledge to understand exactly what um, the policy context is and the impacts of the policies. So this is just a very quick summary of the types of research, evidence and analysis that the department has commissioned over many, many years. New primary research and analysis um, to understand and explain a topic, to scope an area for policy development, secondary analysis of quantitative and qualitative data, Uh, modeling, technical and scientific research, particularly for the areas of regulation and guidance where this applies. Uh, but also think pieces on emergent ideas, things that uh, will help stimulate and inform new policies. And what's very important is the dissemination and discussion around the research that's generated to understand what it actually means, how it might be applied to uh, real life situations. There are many, obviously, publications from the research activity that uh, the Department has uh, commissioned over the years, uh, and those are all available on the Department's website, but a snapshot of how we've collaborated with academic colleagues in the past uh, include sponsorships of research fellowships which have been very important for sharing expertise and primary knowledge generated by the academics on a real life policy issue. Then the synthesis of academic research combined with research from other providers to inform legislation and new policies. Um, and also collaborating with research centers in partnership with research councils to make the most of the combined resources that we have. Finally, I'd just like to maybe draw attention to some of the challenges and then just after that, some of the ways in which we can work better together. Obviously, we work uh, in very different um, spheres in in ways with different challenges and demands on our professional expertise. Um, We work to different objectives. For academics, there's a lot of pressure, uh, if my memory serves me correctly, from working in academia for producing really sound, robust, peer-reviewed publications. It's pushing forward theoretical knowledge and it's generating new evidence. Um, And this obviously has a slightly different uh, remit and time scale than some of the uh, research activities and analytical activities that feed into a policy-making process. Indeed, the policy context can be a very rapidly changing and evolving context that makes it difficult but not impossible to specify work at the beginning and still have it completely relevant and applicable once the project and the contract reaches uh, fruition, but it is a challenge. Also getting outputs from uh, research activities that are tailor-made and applicable to a policy-making context. Uh, again, it's a challenge. Um, the narrative, the, maybe the particular concepts or the context have changed, and as a result, sometimes the outputs don't quite fit with the context in which they are being used and applied. So that, that is, uh, these are just some of the challenges but I don't believe they're impossible to, uh, to overcome. But as you can see, the list of potential opportunities is longer. Um, there are seven points on my slide, and almost all of them are around sharing the knowledge that we have. It's about sharing new information and new evidence with the officials and the analysts. This can be done in a coordinated way through departments, by departments, uh, in universities and research centres, collating their knowledge, building up and working with the networks that exist with officials and analysts in government. It's also making the most of the government economic and social research uh, networks. They're there to provide a disseminating arm across all the departments and they're interested and want to get... the best and latest information that you have so there is an opportunity there for pooling together what you're doing, the key concepts, the new findings and sharing them. Um, I guess there are ways in which academic research centers and individuals doing academic research can look at the department's websites, see what are the priority issues, see how maybe their programs and curricula can be at least include those, if not tailor them to those agendas, but see how they can pick up. And this is really about building capacity and knowledge and stimulating debate on issues that will be of interest to departments and to yourselves. Um, There are also things around policy picnics. We in the department have started to run these policy picnics lunchtime seminars where academics are invited to share their new thinking, the work that they're uh, undertaking, particularly where it's got a a real cut across with the agenda the department's working on. And they're very stimulating and very, very positive experiences and opportunities. So those kinds of outlets about sharing information and having dialogue with um, officials and with academics is is quite important. And then it's really about sharing your knowledge about what works well. Um, We all know that we are trying to make the best out of more limited resources. And sort of a recurring question that we are faced with, but I'm sure you are also interested in, is what works and how we can make the best uh, public policy impacts with reduced resources. So it's about really sharing the emerging findings that we have. in a way that stimulates the use of that knowledge in policy making. Thank you.
2: Okay, thank you very much Maria. And perfect timekeeping. Our second speaker is Jill Rutter from the Institute for governments
3: Okay, do you can I just stay here? Can Everybody here? If I just uh, sit here, I haven't got uh, I haven't got nifty slides, I'm afraid, because uh, when I was asked for slides last week, I was uh, doing slides for something else, so I just said "Ah, I'll speak without slides. So of course, I bitterly regret that now. But anyway, Um, I'm Jill Rutter. I'm from the Institute for Government. Um, I was very pleased that we graduated to just be a set of initials. Uh, For those of you that don't know what the Institute for Government is the Institute for Government is a charity, it's a research and learning institute directed not at looking at policy as you might understand it but at government effectiveness so that's what we're interested in but what I'm going to talk to you about today is some of the results of a year, year and a half study that we did looking at policy making in the UK. Um, Our research method for that was uh, we interviewed 50 serving senior civil servants, including some of the heads of policy profession, and, but not so much the research and analytic community. So this is the view from the policy makers. But we also, quite interestingly, for an exercise like this, talked to 20 former ministers. So we're also getting the minister's take on the quality of policy making. Many of the points that I'm going to make are very, very overlapping with Maria's points, but they perhaps give a slightly different perspective, not least because they're coming from people who are at a slightly different point in the policy process. So, actually, rather than being the direct consumers and the direct linkages into academia, these are people at one or two or even more stages removed from that. Um, So I'm just going to give you a very quick overview of our results, because I think it has implications both for government, about how government makes policy and uses the outputs that you as researchers can uh, can offer, but I think it also has some quite interesting implications for how you engage with the policy making community, so I think we need to change both the demand and supply sides for those of you that are economists and understand that sort of language. I realise that's not everybody here, but anyway, it is however the language of government so it does sort of matter. Um, Maria put up the standard policy cycle that you'll find in the green book. Um, we, and indeed the civil servants that we interviewed, weren't totally enamoured of the policy cycle because one of the things that, uh, that happens is it's never really quite like that in government, and I speak from years and years and years as a civil servant as well, um, that you don't really go around neatly in all those steps. But what we suggested in its place, and building on some work as well, that the Cabinet Office did in 1999, it's Modernising Government. White paper suggests that good policy needs to have, needs to display seven policy fundamentals. Um, Many of them are sort of represented like that. They need to have been observed at least in some point in that process. And to sign off a policy as robust, you need to be sure that those there. Three of them are really, really relevant to the academic community, three of our policy fundamentals. One is that policies need to have been based on a sort of quite rigorous idea generation and evaluation of what's gone before process. So basically that when you're generating those, you've really looked in and networked into what ideas are out there, you know, and what is the what is research telling you. So what's that? Including research on what you've done before. One of the things that's very striking is how how we treat policy as sort of discrete as though we're sort of almost doing one completely from scratch without actually paying a huge amount of attention to what we've done before and what we've learnt as part of doing that. So that's, that's one fundamental. A second fundamental that we think is underdone at the moment but really important is what we call rigorous policy design. That's the sort of bit where you take the policy concept as a good idea but actually ask the different questions about, can it actually work in practice when you try and translate it into the real world? And if you look at some of the policy failures, and there's quite a big ESRC research programme being led by Tony King from Essex and I have a crew from Oxford at the moment on policy failures. One of the real reasons for quite a lot of policy failures is people out there don't act as our neat little models suggest they should. I know John Hills, who's an alumnus of of LSE, did an awful lot of interesting work looking at the income distribution at the bottom end of the income scale. And when you look at that, you realise that tax credits we were going to be really difficult to implement because these weren't just people who had incomes like everybody else in the population and just had less of it. These were people with really chaotic income, so the idea that that sort of system could work. But too often we don't actually think about that design phase. I think that's one area where research and understanding the data and the population is really potentially important. I think it's also a very important role there as well for modelling. The final one that I want to talk a bit more about later is on the need for good evaluation when we do do policies, but also what we call feedback, and I want to come on to that a bit later. The general reading we had was that, that you know, none of these were done that well at the moment. That was a few, both from quite self-critical, reflective civil servants and from Ministers. Um, some of the areas which are standing weaknesses are issues around innovation, issues around evaluation, and that those were weaknesses when the Cabinet Office did modernising government in 1999. Uh, 13 years of reforms afterwards, they're still, still areas of weakness. One of the things that was really interesting in our policy making research was the way in which Ministers criticised civil servants for not being on top of current thinking. They didn't feel that civil servants were well-networked into what was coming out of research, nor out of the think tank community, which is sort of quite useful. I think it was a session later on intermediaries. Think tanks very often take research and repackage them for the sort of slightly more uh, superficial audience of the policy-making community. Um, They felt that civil servants moved around too often to develop real knowledge of their own, and that within the civil service, there's a tendency (coughs) to to undervalue expertise. all of those suggest that we need to make some changes and that civil servants and government departments need to become much better at what we call, not necessarily having all that knowledge in-house, but being able to access it through what in our report we call a one degree of separation rule. Internally, they need to value knowledge and expertise more. They need better skills, not just in the research, and social research and economic community, but throughout the policy-making, they need better, better skills at analysing data, using it, and using and understanding research. We think those sort of changes will increase the demand side for research. We also think it's quite important, though, that we don't misuse ministers by by making them haggle about evidence and analysis, that ministers should basically be asked to make political decisions off the best available evidence base. So one of the things that we suggest, and we're very struck by a policy reunion we had about the Pensions Commission, was, if you remember, the Pensions Commission did a sort of two-stage process, partly inadvertently as a result of being imposed on by Gordon Brown. They put out their analysis early and said to people, this is our reading of what the data says. Do you agree? People could then criticize that evidence base, bring new insights to bear. So then when they went forward, it was on a better but also more widely shared evidence base. So then you could say, well, actually, if we think you think we frame that problem right, then let's talk about what the options are. And too often the evidence base and the proposals all become bound up in each other. And the evidence base, you get this difference between what you call evidence-based policy making and what too often we slip into in government, which is evidence-backed policy making. Where what you're using your evidence for is almost like an adversarial lawyer to make the case for the policy that you're proposing. So we think separate out the evidence base, subject that to more rigorous scrutiny, use ministers for where they can really add value, which is on the politics and the political choices. Because none of the evidence base necessarily denies any of political choices. Academia needs to be able to respond. Uh, and that I fear means sort of getting your hands a bit dirtier because uh, the political process is sort of a bit murkier than some of the areas. So if you want to stay in the ivory tower, stay in the ivory tower. If you want impact, you've got to come down and meet us at least uh, least halfway. You need to be networked into the policy process. You need to build those relationships. To know what's going on, whether they're with sort of Maria, Maria's counterparts, other people. So you can be on top of what the agenda is and helping to do that. That may not be of direct relevance to the piece of work you're working on now, but that's sort of absolutely vital starting point. You need to make your material much more accessible to people in the policy community, because there's one thing to sort of say, go out there and get it, but actually the fact that if I, if I sitting in IFG, want an academic article, I have to go and find an intern who's still got an LSE password to get the stuff because it's on Google Scholar. It doesn't actually make that stuff terribly usable. And then actually if you're under huge time pressures, the pressures are all actually just to move on and ignore what's out there. So actually uh, make it more sort of in your face and easier for the people you want to use it, do it. Maria mentioned the very different time scales. The idea that we'll have the results available in two or three years is no help to a politician who has come in and wants to make an impact early. So, if you want an impact, you have to be able to think: How can you make your stuff usable on the timescales of politics and policy, not on the sort of more academic timescales? So, that's uh, that's one thing. You need to be opportunistic. Um, you might be working on something and have moved on from something you worked on three or four years ago, or even ten or fifteen years ago. But that may be an idea whose moment comes. So, if you want to make an impact, you need to think about that. When we were doing a course on how to influence policymaking for people at the British Academy, we had Nick Bowles, who founded Policy Exchange, who's now a Conservative MP, came and talked about how they were developing a new Tory narrative. They wanted to do something about more devolution of power and local accountability. They found somebody who had been working for years down at the University of Portsmouth on police commissioners. So that was suddenly a moment where the political cycle and academic cycle merged together. So he suddenly became their favourite academic and they gave him a launchpad. But he might have moved on, that may have been work that he'd done 10, 15 years ago. So I think uh, be prepared to take opportunities if you want to make an impact. And the final thing is to understand on this, is to understand the two very different worlds. In academia, it's very important to spell out all the reservations, the caveats, the parabuses, et etc., in your work. But policymakers need to be prepared to admit more uncertainty. They need to meet you halfway there and need not to overclaim and exaggerate that. But equally, they do need to make a decision. So giving them, a, on the one hand or on the other hand, a very nicely balanced stuff that doesn't allow them to make a decision will simply add in frustration. I want to just finalise, finish up by saying one word about evaluation. When we did a survey of both ministers and civil servants, evaluations sort of scored bottom on both counts. Um, We think there's a general issue that there isn't a particular learning culture among either ministers or civil servants. But it's pretty clear at the moment that the way we do evaluations means that they're neither used nor necessarily very useful. There's quite a bit of... Difficulties on the way in which they're commissioned. They're commissioned by the departments whose uh, work they're looking at. They're not very independent. Never. Equally, the sort of form in which we do traditional evaluations, again, doesn't really fit the political cycle. Too often you get evaluations, Maria said, after the policy's already been changed because the political cycle is different. So I think there's a challenge out there to the academic community of developing new ways of looking at policy so we can develop more of what we call feedback in time that works for the politics rather than just having a sort of standard model of evaluations which means they usually miss the boat and end up on a shelf somewhere, whatever. Uh, Overall, I think we need a change in political culture which allows more trial and error to go forward because I think actually as we face the sort of very complex challenges going forward, we really need to be in a world where we can mesh the best of the policy making there in government, outside government, with the best that is coming out of research.
2: Thank you. Uh, and our third speaker is James Johns, who's the director of strategy for civil government at Hewlett Thank you. Good afternoon, everybody. Um, I'm I'm very pleased to be here this afternoon
4: uh, to talk to you about some of the work we've done with the uh, universities. Um, I'm not allowed out without a few slides on on what <laughs> we do. So you can really ignore the top part of this slide. Suffice it to say, we're a huge technology company. We sell a hell of a lot of hardware and do a lot of services. In the context of this conference today and this particular session, it's probably the bottom four bullet points on this slide that are the most interesting. So um, as well as all of that hardware we produce, we're also the biggest provider of IT services to the public sector in the UK. Uh, If we were a government department, um, we would not be the smallest in terms of the amount of revenue we derive from our government business. And so we uh, acknowledge that that gives us a degree of responsibility for making sure that the the policy we're asked to help implement is uh, effective. We also spend an awful lot of money ourselves on R&D. We have a network of five research laboratories across the world, including one here in the UK in Bristol, who do, um, in many cases, absolute primary research on new technologies. They invent uh, uh, new electronic components. They do um, work on the sort of very bowels of computers, as well as applied research on how they can be used better. Um, and. Uh, both through that route and through some uh, direct relationships that we have elsewhere in our business, uh, the count I did last week in anticipation of this presentation, we could identify somewhere around 18 or 20 partnerships, active partnerships at the moment with UK universities where uh, we fund research activity or other activity around there. So uh, we, we are a consumer of, of, of academic services, if you like. In terms of our work with the public sector, um, despite what um, certain uh, individuals might believe we don't actually set government policy and uh, you know much as though we would like to have that degree of influence we we're, we're actually there uh, working alongside the civil servants helping to implement it um, so we have a legitimate interest in making sure that the policy that is executed is implementable and it's not uh, as as Jill was saying uh, you know not not government organisations heading off down blind alleys and and you know we, we are Uh, disappointed to have, to our name, some uh, policies that perhaps could have been implemented more successfully. So we do have a vested interest in getting this right. Um, And where our relationships with government organisations are at their best, um, we do have a role, we do get consulted about um, uh, emerging policy and about how that that can best be translated from uh, green paper into operational activity. We do use our relationships with universities to do that, uh, and I'm going to talk in a little while about some of those relationships uh, and the characteristics of the the good ones, uh, and how we use them, I suppose, in sort of two areas. So firstly, um, we use those relationships in support of our role influencing policy, uh, and some of the work, in fact, that we've done here with LSE has been very useful in that regard. But we also use that uh, research in support of the sort of wider mechanics of our public sector business, what do I mean about that? Well, clearly, we are, as a large company, we have an interest in what you might call kind of conditioning the market so that uh, our products and services are um, are accepted. So, uh, some of the research that we've helped fund has also been aimed at influencing government policy around technology adoption on a, on a wider basis, the economic value of the adoption of technology. Some really useful work we've done here with the Centre for Economic Performance at LSE on the impact of technology on productivity and comparative studies around the world, which is uh, very helpful in that regard. So I'll talk a little bit about uh, both of those. We also use um, academic relationships to to add an other set of capabilities to our business. And I'll I'll move on and talk a little bit about about some of those. So broadly, there are three areas where we would use an academic relationship. Uh, in, in the, the, the discharge of our, our services business. I'm not talking here about the uh, sort of specific R&D activity we do. So firstly, it adds capability. You know, universities uh, employ people that we couldn't hope to replicate in-house, either you know, because we, uh, you know, we couldn't find a role for them, we couldn't afford to pay them on a full-time basis, they wouldn't want to work for a company like HP, and so on. Um, and so we do uh, tap into to the, uh, the ac- academic, academic community for that sort of capability, uh, in support of our own research efforts as well, in support of the work that labs do. And I got a wonderful quote from one of the researchers at labs when I spoke to him last week and, and asked him you know, what he found particularly useful about some of the partnerships they've got with academic institutions, and this was brilliant, because they'll use it for something we haven't thought of and it will break, which I suppose is, uh, is quite a nice... Um, A a, a nice example of of the sort of innovative uh, use of our technology that we can't replicate in-house. Actually one of the bullet points here has slipped below the line. The last bullet point on that top one, influencing what's taught and how, is a very important part of the relationship we have with some uh, academic institutions. Um, Obviously we employ graduates, we employ graduates in a particular field in technology um, and one of the things that we often find is that particularly because the entry-level jobs in IT have changed beyond all recognition, even in over the, even over the 15 or 20 years, last 15 or 20 years, many of the sort of classic entry-level analyst programmer jobs that used to be done in the UK have been offshored, so companies like HP quite simply don't have a requirement for that sort of uh, entry-level role anymore. So we've done quite a bit of work trying to influence universities both directly and through trade bodies like eSkills. To uh, structure their courses in a way that, that make them more useful to us, and I'll talk about an example of that in a second. Second point around collaboration. Um, the academic community is a great peer group for those people who work inside our organization, either who do research for a living, or are subject matter experts in particular areas like public policy. Uh, and so having links in with ac- links to academic institutions builds a peer group that they can use uh, in the course of their work. And that also allows us to link into the sort of wider research community uh, and work collaboratively with uh, external institutions. And we do that both through uh, funded channels, so things like TSB funded uh, research programmes, and also through an innovation research programme that we fund ourselves. So two or three times a year, we'll issue a call for um, uh, interesting areas of research. Again, this is funded through our labs organisation, and typically we'll pick up um, sort of 30 or 40 topics a year through that process, which may or may not then lead into sort of funded collaboration. And then the last point really is around enhancing our credibility What do I mean by that? Well, it it manifests itself in a number of different ways. So firstly, it can often be very useful for us, to have somebody who is academically independent do a piece of work. If we wanted to issue a a report or a point of view, clearly we have the capability to do that. And as HP, we can make a bit of a splash with it. But there's always a sense of sort of, well, they would say that, wouldn't they, uh, about that. So um, there there are situations where we would want some research done externally so that the credibility of it is, is actually useful to us and people will take more attention to it. Secondly, universities can help us get contact with people who we might otherwise prove hard to reach, uh, certainly in our government business um, where, you know, for very good and and sensible reasons, the sorts of uh, rules around uh, corporate entertainment that we might use in the commercial side of our business simply uh, don't work. We can use relationships with academic institutions to create platforms where we can engage with policymakers in advance of... uh, policy being implemented and and can network and and work with them then. And then lastly it's good for us to be seen to be supporting uh, the university sector. It enhances our credibility as an innovative company and a good corporate citizen and clearly those are things which are not uh, trivial from HP's point of view. So this next slide then talks about just four examples of some of our current and recent programs and I'll I'll talk uh, a little bit about each one of these. The first um, program we had here with LSE until last year which was a five-year program uh, that we funded Uh, as part of a sort of strategic partnership that was centered on a number of different themes and I can never remember all of them but the two key ones from my perspective were the work we did with the public policy department here uh, and with the Centre for Economic Performance and Productivity which I've just talked about. Incredibly helpful to us because they provided uh, in some cases research which quite simply had never been done before on the application of of, of technology uh, uh, in public sector organisations and more widely in the economy. Um, And there was a seminar programme associated with that which ran three events a year during that period uh, where um, typically an audience made up of uh, academics, students and invited guests from HP would come along to talk and discuss about uh, those findings. Um, Secondly, uh, the partnership we have with Cranfield, uh, this is with the School of Management there. This is a really useful partnership from our point of view. Um, Jill talked about a couple of um, sort of policy failures uh, in in government. One of the things that we found, really, is that um, an absence on both the supply and demand side of really, really top-class programme management skills is one of the reasons that these projects can often go wrong. And so we funded at Cranfield an international centre for programme management, which I think is one of the first, uh, certainly in the UK, who are developing um, an independent set Of uh, measures and metrics about what good program management looks like Um, and the idea then is that we'll use that both to train our staff uh, in uh, in enhancing their skills but it's also a program that we've invited other suppliers and um, our customers to get involved in from both the public and the private sector so we're trying to create a a genuine uh, environment for sharing that knowledge across the, the industry. Our partnership with the UWE, this is a relatively new one. It was kicked off at the back end of last year in its current form, but it's a long-standing relationship reflecting the fact that they happen to be on the same physical site as us in, in Bristol. Um, And the relationship has has changed over the years. We funded chairs there, we've done research with them. Current focus is on what we're calling a teaching partnership and uh, what we're doing here is there's an HP branded degree in enterprise computing that they're just about to launch where HP folk are involved in doing the teaching. We've made commitments around internships and uh, employment of their graduates uh, at the end of the course. And as well as coming out of that with a degree, Um, the students will come out of that with some of the professional qualifications that we find useful in our business. So we'll be able to take those graduates into our organization and have them productive effectively from day one. They won't go through a sort of classic graduate training program uh, when they join. And the last one I wanted to talk about today, which is um, one that I'm particularly involved in and and, um, very much enjoy uh, being involved in, is a relationship we have uh, down with the folk in the history department at Queen Mary. Um, which we think may well be unique. I'd be interested to know if anyone else has has got one of these as an example. We think it's the only example we can find in the UK of a technology company sponsoring a history department. the programme there has been going for seven years, four years in its current form, uh, and as part of that programme we provide bursaries for their uh, students on the MA in Contemporary Political History course, we fund an academic place, and there's a high-profile seminar programme that runs alongside that that's had speakers uh, like Peter Mandelson, uh, Andrew Marr, uh, Melvin Bragg, um, David Willett um, has, has also been and spoke on that programme, uh, that, that we're very um, Uh, very proud to to support, and I'll talk a little bit more about that in a second. Um, So what makes these things successful from our point of view? This is just a a sort of a a user's perspective, if you like. I'm not sure whether all of these things are relevant in terms of the assessments you have to do of impact, but um, these are the things that tend to work for us. So relationships that start bottom-up rather than top-down tend to be more productive. They tend to be born out of a genuine ability and desire to work together, rather than some if I could use this expression, sort of executive bigwigs desire to be seen to be gifting a large amount of money into the university sector. So they they tend to have a degree more practicality if they start in that way. Um, Good quality, relevant and practical research, clearly we're a world class organisation, we want our academic partners to be world class as well. Um, Mutually beneficial and not symmetrical, what do I mean by that? In, in practice, um, the sorts of money that can make a big difference to an academic department are relatively small scale to an organisation like HP. That doesn't mean that they're easy to get at, but what it does mean is that the exchange of value can be done in lots of different ways. So something that, um, that costs us not a lot of money... Um, can be relatively easy for, but, but is a big, uh, a big amount of money for a university. Can be relatively easy for a university to deliver on. So the seminar programmes, for example, that we support, just funding the, uh, the sort of hospitality and the physical premises of those we know is is for a lot of institutions can be quite difficult. Competitive differentiation has become a big deal, I guess, particularly um, with the focus, uh, the, the ch- sort of changed emphasis on funding for universities now. Um, We're very much aware when we establish relationships with universities that um, we don't want to offer the same thing to more than two or three of them because that diminishes the value from their point of view. So we won't necessarily be doing uh, repeats of that UWE course, for example, with lots of other institutions because the value that it adds to UWE then gets um, dissolved. Um, These things always work best if they're based on strong personal relationships uh, and there's a degree of trust involved. And the last point here really, one of the things that people often ask me uh, when I'm talking about our our academic relationships, there's always interest in this notion of academic independence. And does it mean that because HP is funding a particular piece of research that we're going to go and lift the lid on it and meddle in the bowels of it and try and influence the outcome? Uh, I never really understand why that's something that is of concern to academics. If we wanted to produce something with a point of view in it, we would write it ourselves. So where we do fund academic research, it's because we genuinely want it to be independent. Um, and I can certainly speak from my experience that you know, we 've we've often funded research which has been unhelpful in terms of <laughs> these conclusions that 's part of the deal and that 's the point i 'm really making about being grown ups I think uh, you know We've we've had examples in the past, not with any of the institutions I'm talking about today, where our our academic funding has been a little bit like the time I took my 14-year-old son into town to buy some clothes. You know, he he needed the money, but he was not going to acknowledge that he needed the money, Mm -hmm. or that I had any hand in the choice of clothes that he had. In fact, he wouldn't even walk with me during the time, and and, and that's never going to work. You know, there has to be a degree of mutual respect here. Uh, We're both using each other's brands in this kind of situation, and and I think a respect for the brand of both organisations is really important. Uh, Last slide. Um, Some of you might have seen this picture. It was on the BBC website um, at the back end of last week. Um, To me, this sums up uh, in one picture um, some of the work that we've, we've done on academic impact. This is the Blair Government class at Queen Mary in the History Department. A couple of weeks ago, who, as a culmination of their, um, their class, managed to get uh, an audience with, uh, with the man himself, who's uh, the uh, slightly spooky-looking chap sat in the middle there, in case you didn't <laughs> recognise him. Um, so why is this impactful from our point of view? Well, in this picture, there are four students on the current course whose bursaries were paid by HP, which brings to, uh, to, to 12, the, the total number that we funded over the course of this relationship. Um, There's a student in there who, as a result of an internship that she did with us last year, then did a piece of paid consulting work for us as her first paid postgraduate job. Uh, There's somebody from HP in there, I'm not going to point out who it is, who managed to get along for the ride on this event. There's an academic whose job has been funded by HP for the last three years. There's a journalist, John Rental, on the right-hand side, um, who typically writes about politics. Many of you have read his piece. He, at least, has now seen something positive about HP's connection with government rather than (laughs) just a bad news story about another failed project. This um, photograph appeared, as I say, on the BBC website. It's also appeared in the... uh, uh, the Independent. Uh, the story was tweeted by Blair himself after he, or Blair's foundation after the, uh, after the visit with a link back to the Mile End Group's um, homepage on the QM website which has got an HP logo on it. So from our point of view this is very impactful. Thank you. Okay. Oh, you. and I've cited some references at the back of my presentation, like all yes, good <laughs> academics uh, should, uh, if you wanted to find
2: out more about those programs. Thank you, okay. thank, thank you very much, uh, James, and thanks to all three speakers who've Uh, shown a whole range of different perspectives from research for government institute for government through to to industry but I think two key themes as people are kind of thinking about the questions they want to ask first one is it's very clear that it it is and wants to be a two-way street it's not that government doesn't like talking to academia or academia doesn't like working uh, with industry and I think a second one is that there's that difference between talking in detail about the very specifics of your research and being able to convey and present your research in a way that the senior civil servants, somebody slightly higher up who's not involved in the technical details, uh, also needs to be done. And that's an incredibly useful skill to feed back for academia as well because it makes your teaching clearer, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So do we have any questions? Gary, 1st I think you've got people running with microphones.
0: I ask for a, well, a little provocation? Why don't you write uh, the case studies for REF for us? Because uh, you seem to have a very clear idea about uh, where actually academia impacts on industry, on government, on, on specific areas. You have a much better, I mean, you are the users, you said. I think research and institutions, uh, research institution, has their best interest in ensure the fundamental research is developed in the widest possible range of disciplines, and is communicated and is, a, you know, disseminated as much as possible. But actually, the impact endpoint, the user group,
1: are you? So, just a little provocation. Why don't you write yeah. our case studies? <laughs> point, I'm,
4: I'm, from our point of view, we'd be happy to contribute to the production of those things, uh, and even I think when we establish contracts with academic organisations, we'd be happy to be contracted to do that as part of the relationship, now that it's an obligation that that they all have to to bear as part of their REF.
1: I'm Joanna Conings from the Treasury. I'm I was very glad to hear that um, Maria mentioned the professional networks of economists and social researchers across government. Um, I'm from the government economic and social research team within the Treasury, um, trying to draw these people all together and make sure that the network is strong. Um, Work by my team will hopefully make these networks much easier to navigate and access for um, academics external to government. in the current REF and in future REFs. Um, Briefly on the policy cycle, because we are enamored of it in the Treasury, um, the fact that it is depicted as a cycle shows our our commitment and our belief that it is a cycle dependent on feedback and that we're trying to draw in what has worked and what has not worked. Um, The recently published Magenta book has separate elements, one for policymakers and one for analysts, And we hope that that's really going to improve the way that people understand how evaluation is important and why. Um, Finally, just a plug for the green and magenta books, which are both on the Treasury external website. Um, They're good reads.
2: (laughs) (laughs) On the right.
5: Hi, it's Megan Quinlan with Imperial College Center for Environmental Policy. Um, Something that I've come across in work is that um, groups are coming with um, sometimes us as academics or um, charities or uh, interest groups are coming with um, conclusions of recommended um, policy or practice and then you come to the table and or the forum or the convention or whatever and it changes as a process of this collaboration that some of you have mentioned Um, and there's actually been groups that have lost funding because they couldn't show that their idea came out the other end but the input was critical to what did come out the other end so my question is in this type of environment of trying to show your impact do you have any ideas or suggestions about showing impact of collaboration and of of um, a contribution to something that isn't exactly what you've brought to the table but changed what came out.
0: Thanks, uh, Megan. Is is it Megan? Yeah, thanks Megan. That's a very interesting point. Um, I don't actually have a specific recommendation, but I am mindful that that is a challenge. Um, I know in our department we are looking at measuring, monitoring impact from our research Um, and it's something we're going to have to focus on over the next few years Um, and this will mean actually exploring what impact means for both the research provider and us as a user. Um, I think there's probably more room for discussion on this. I think the point you raised is is, is an important one, if, if, do you think so, Jill?
3: Uh, yeah, I'm not an expert in exactly how impact is measured, but I think it would be a huge shame if the way in which impact was measured had a very perverse effect of actually not allowing you to actually say what you honestly think is the position to influence things, even if it's then you know, the debate changes. I mean, if people go in with set positions and have to stick to them in order that they can show a line of sight from their input to the output, that seems to me that that's becoming a situation where the sort of measure is actually leading to a perverse outcome, and it's hugely undesirable. Um, it was quite notable, we ran a conference uh, or a course uh, a few weeks ago for people from the British Academy, so postdocs, the British Academy, and we're talking a bit about impact. We had, uh, I mentioned John Hill was before, John came and so that actually, in terms of impact, the way it's measured meant something like being a leading member of the Pensions Commission or being asked by the government to completely rewrite policy on fuel poverty didn't really score as impact. So I think we're, which clearly is actually massive impact. But if there doesn't have a sort of peer reviewed whatever at the end, it doesn't count as impact. So I think there needs to be a sophistic- I think looking at impact is important. Because there are quite a lot of things where you look at some of the stuff that gets funded by the ESRC, you can see that is so far away from ever having any real impact that maybe in a time of story that wasn't necessarily the best stuff to be doing. But I think that you need to have a sort of much more sophisticated understanding of impact so you can actually sort of understand all these different things. Because actually it's one of the things that's quite interesting, that if research cuts off blind alleyways and says don't go there, that's actually a really important finding to say don't do that. So something else may happen. But if your research has contributed to saying that actually isn't a productive area to explore, then I think that's very important. So I think you do need to be able to much more specifically check the sort of audit trail to impact. So it shouldn't just be, you know, direct sort of input-output matrix.
6: Nicholas Barr, London School of Economics. Um, Question on behalf of my younger colleagues. Um, Jill, you talked about the desirability of policy being evidence-based, not evidence-backed. I observe times in government when the evidence is tortured until it gives in. (laughs) And... I mean, for my sins, I do academic writing and policy work mm. both on pensions and higher education finance and sometimes also on healthcare. And those three illustrate big differences. I mean, pensions at the moment is discussing a range of policies which sensible people can disagree about, and it does seem to be evidence-based. Mm. NHS reform seems to have got so emotive that it's not clear that it's going to be politically possible for evidence-based policy to have the, uh, the impact that it should. And higher education finance, if you've got policies A and B that reasonable people could disagree about and policy C that's clearly nuts, um, it's policy C. <laughs> um, so the question for my junior colleagues is how do you choose a minister or a department that's going to take evidence seriously? Because this really is a random variable in, in impact. I mean, you're talking as though we are all trying to be analytical and rational, and within this room we are, but not everybody does, and help, what should we be
4: doing?
3: Now, I'm talking as though in a, in a better world we might all be, rather than the sort of as-is. Um, I think it's really quite instructive to look at a sort of compare and contrast of processes, because actually I don't think it's particularly sort of about departments, Uh, or ministers, I think it's a bit about processes, and I think there may be something in that. I think, but this is I hasten to add very quickly a personal view, not an IFG view, (laughs) that um, I mean, I think it's the sort of famous Nigel Lawson quote about the NHS is the nearest thing we have in this country to a religion. And I think actually that prevents any sensible debate about the NHS in this country. I think we've got ourselves into a position where actually we cannot look evidentially at other systems and say, do they actually produce better outcomes at less cost than ours? Because you are not allowed politically to say anything that appears to be against the NHS, whatever. So I think we all suffer because of that. Quite interestingly, then, if you go back to process, We were having a discussion at Imperial with Aradazi about something something different. Aradazi set up this health policy unit. Um, But the editor of The Lancet was comparing our process of uh, NHS reform, which I think is quite interesting. The FT today has said, by trying to take the politics out of health, Andrew Lanzi's managed to make it more political than Mm -hmm. it's been since its inception, Um, whatever. But but there, the Norwegians had tried to embark on a massive health reform, and what they did actually was, was set up a commission. Uh, they gave it to some experts. They put it. To, so they technocratised that stage. And I think there's a really interesting thing. If you look at Turner on pensions, um, if you look at the Norwegian NHS reforms, uh, a bit of technocratisation, other things that have happened there. So then the question is, well, what went wrong with the Brown review on HE? which you're going to throw back at me, aren't you? <laughs> But I think there it's quite interesting because I think that was I think a good and bad reviews, and this is something we were quite interested in doing some work about at the Institute of Government. When do reviews work? I think single-person reviews don't work actually. I think the three commissioner model that you've had in some of the more successful ones is better because it actually enables you to bounce ideas off varying they may not be there as interest groups, but they're certainly representing different sort of uh, world views. I think that's very helpful. Brown never presented his evidential base separately from the Proposals, And actually, he's my sort of Exhibit A on the problem of the proposals being mixed up in the evidence space. I think the real problem, though, with Brown is that I don't think anyone really clued in to the fact that the government was taking so much money out of higher education. When you look at the education figures, basically, the education budget looks, you know, sort of, you know, it's taken quite a big hit, but schools are protected, which means it's all coming out of higher education. Now, if you get some degree of consensus, that you're or not consensus, but at least some degree of understanding, that the issue is how do you make up a two billion gap on higher education funding, then you have a different sort of debate to where people pretend that wasn't an issue. I think it's really interesting. One of the things we looked at when we were doing the policymaking making report. Sorry to rub it here a bit. Um, the Australians have a thing called the Productivity Commission, which doesn't do what it says on the tin. It, uh, it's quite intriguing, though. The government—it's uh, an arm's length body. It's a treasury-sponsored arm's length body that actually does policy analysis for government. So their higher education contribution scheme, which in many ways informed our initial move to tuition fees, was developed through a piece of research done by the economists, and they are all economists, at the Productivity Commission, which has 11 independent commissioners. So the government tosses them a policy problem uh, and says, go away for a year, produce options for us that we can consider, they are completely independent, they have process of public consultation, they're not however politically naive, so they sort of, you know, work out what's going to be doable, what isn't. But they end up producing a range of options that can then be looked at and inform the policy debate, both making the same evidence available to ministers and to opposition, etc., when they report back. And actually, I think for some of these difficult issues, that actually is quite a useful way of going. We set up those reviews independently quite interesting, I think, what Andrew Dilnot's trying to do on long-term social care, which seems to me to be very much going back to a Turner-ish model of trying to get people get some consensus, take things forward. Very interesting where that's developing. So I think for some of these really difficult issues, I have to say, just putting it in commission to a producer-interest-led uh, panel like the Steve Field thing doesn't seem to me to be a great way of going on the NHS either, actually. But to say with some of these issues where actually we... We are too constrained to have a sensible debate. Let's externalise it, and then let's come back when they've done quite a lot of the heavy lifting. And maybe we've done what we're quite bad at doing. Uh, In government, you close off options too quickly. If you've uh, found commission research um, that may produce inconvenient results, ministers find out, you know, they are accused of sort of, you know, secret plans to do X, even if it's been commissioned by somebody really low down in the department. Some of the... When I was acting communications director at DEFRA, some of the most difficult conversations with Hillary Benn were about him trying to cancel our research programme. DEFRA has quite a big research programme, I think quite a well-respected research programme. There are issues about dissemination, where we never have any money to do that. Um, so I think we commissioned the same research quite a lot of times. But we had a very good research programme. But Hillary Benn saw it as nothing other than a source of grief for him. All it was, was politically unfortunate things. And frankly, the moment he discovered the University of Liverpool had seen fit to send a press release to the Daily Telegraph about a very small section of a thing looking at uh, disease transmission among pets, saying dogs on leads have fewer so- social contacts than dogs off leads, uh, which they'd done as a press release, sent straight to the Telegraph without telling us, was when he was almost going to cancel the entire thing and saying if these people can't understand any of the politics around this, then why on earth are we giving them any money? So I think there is a sort of being savvy about research piece too, but I think the more we can open up evidence bases to things and depoliticize the evidence base, then the more we can have sensible policy discussions out of that. Okay, I think
2: there's one question at the back.
7: Here. Uh, just a quick comment and then a question. Uh, the comment about access to the literature, um, you can always try emailing the corresponding author, they're often very compliant, or uh, the other alternative is to properly fund open access, which the research council in this country don't yet do properly, in my view. Touching on this question about evidence and the tension between political goals and uh, sort of fair consideration of the evidence, which was just raised in that uh, question, we have seen episodes involving people like David Nutt and whatnot, but uh, there is always going to be a tension between democratically elected politicians such as Hillary Benn as you illustrated there and you know the sort of academic principle of well you know peer review and let's examine it and let's look at all the caveats. I just wonder you know many of the problems that society faces they are really technical they are really difficult it's no wonder that sometimes the things that politicians try don't work but you know they should maybe get slapped on the back for trying but I just wonder, is there any appetite in government, in policy forums, for doing random controlled mm-hmm. trials about you know, uh, at least micro aspects of policy, you know, uh, sentencing policy, for example, in cr- the criminal justice system? Uh, or one could probably think of a whole legion of areas where that sort of approach to you know, testing the evidence base you know, might do this country some good.
2: Yeah, no, I, th- I think there is certainly, I mean, Jill was talking about the trial and error and the learning from the trial and error. And I think one of the things that government often doesn't do is it doesn't explicitly pick up on the learning, which can just be a one-page, we tried this, it didn't work, but we've tried it and we know not to to, to do it uh, again. So there is clearly scope for that kind of uh, activity, but how you go about doing it and who actually has the courage and if you can get the ground rules that you won't be slagged off by the opposition for trying what seemed like a sensible idea, not spending billions and billions of pounds doing it and then realising it didn't work, but the small scale uh, and learning from it whether you succeed or whether you fail, I think it's definitely... Uh, a way forward where academia can very clearly uh, contribute We've actually got Tim
3: Harford coming to IFG tonight to talk about his book about the need for more trial and error and policy making to talk exactly about how can you move that into a political context, I think John mm. Van Rienen from LSE is is the discussant because there are big barriers, I mean if cancelling, one of the pieces of research we did for our policy making project, one minister said actually you know you're not going to be in the job for very long Canceling the failing project is political pain. Just keeping on going, ducking until your successor takes over, actually, is the politically smarter strategy. Very often, you know, it's sort of taking. So actually, that, I mean, that's a bit of sort of political culture. Actually, I think people like the National Audit Office have some role in there. Actually, saying start smaller cancer's is actually a good strategy. I think Parliament needs to get smarter about it the press or I mean I think there are a bunch of things that need to change and have ministers actually say no it seemed like a reasonable thing to try, we tried it, but actually this approach has been been more promising. So I think it's I think there is more scope for it. I mean the government's, you know, commissioned big evaluations of the work programme, but I was talking to Jonathan Portes from NISO, who's got the got I think they've got some in the commission for that, saying that the unfortunate thing is it hasn't been set up quite to answer those questions. You know, it's not being set up. Quite as you'd want to do it to do a proper sort of RCT on it, so I think government's gradually getting there the National Environment white paper last week um, actually said that they were going to set up some pilots on the idea of biodiversity offsets so that 's quite an interesting commitment there so we 're going to try that out see if it works may do may not whatever so interesting then I think for academia to be involved in actually making sure that those are properly robust properly evaluated so they're probably done from the start. Um, and I think one of the things we found in lots of evaluations was people evaluated the scheme in their own terms. So just against the desired outcomes, they were quite weak at picking up any sort of wider unintended consequences, which I think is also quite an important thing when you're looking. So I think it's quite a burden back to academia to do better evaluation design when we're looking at that. If we're really going to learn all the lessons for policymaking.
2: So I think we are coming to a close. We have a, a brief uh, tea break and then we're back here again at uh, 4 o'clock and you've got, again, you've got a choice of two different sessions, knowledge transfer in the role of research mediators in this room and improving academic communication in the other room.